So I have entitled today's sermon, Without a Doubt, because sometimes we fail to be real in church. Sometimes we struggle to admit that there is a, a struggle in this life. Uh, we sometimes struggle when there are questions that we cannot seem to find the answers to. Today's scripture pre presents an eye-opening view into who Jesus, one, one person that Jesus calls the greatest man to ever live apart from him. I mean, this is a pretty impressive guy we're going to talk about. Uh, and, and what do we see happen in the mind of the greatest prophet and man to ever live, namely John the Baptist? We see doubts start to creep in. And we see his, his grave situation and his unmet expectations leading to a growing frustration. So join me as we start this journey to see Jesus' response to such a situation and how we can learn from the struggles that John has or had back then in our own lives. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that the Bible's so real. Um, you know, other quote-unquote holy books that are false don't present anything that's negative for the most part. It, it's all positive and the false prophets that, that write these talk about how great that they are and how wonderful that they are. And What I love about the Bible is we see these wonderful men of God and women of God in the Bible. They have flaws. They're sinners. That, that it's all about how great you are, not us. And that is the beauty of the scriptures of the Bible. That is so much different than anything else out there. Because it is the true word of God. And you are a God of truth. We thank you so much for that, and we thank you that you work with imperfect people like us and like John the Baptist, and we thank you that you don't give up on us, Lord. We love you, praise you, and thank you. Be with us today. Amen. All right, so today we're going to see uh, three ways that Jesus works among imperfect people like all of us here, right? So number one, Jesus chooses those who struggle. Jesus chooses those who struggle. Let's go ahead. We're going to be in Luke chapter 7, verses uh, 18 through 35. We're going to start reading 18, and 18 through 20. We're going to cover a decent bit here. Starting in verse 18, the disciples of John reported all these things to him, and John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Well, we haven't heard about John the Baptist for quite some time. Uh, we, we see him referenced in, in Luke 5.33, but he's not really present there. Uh, but we really haven't seen him in person since Luke 3, verse 20. And why might you ask, you're like, well, where's John the Baptist been over these last few chapters while, G while Jesus has been doing his ministry? Well, if you remember from back in Luke 3.20, John did something that didn't make Herod too fond of him. He called him out and said, hey, you took your brother's wife as your wife, and that's immoral. And Herod responded like any uh, self-respecting ruler at that point. He locked him up. He said, don't talk bad about me. I'm going to lock you up. And, uh, and so John has been in prison for quite some time, if we look. John's locked up, or historical record, he's locked up at a palace that looks something like this. These are the ruins from it. It was a, actually a huge desert fortress palace. These are some colonnades left. Uh, actually, throughout some archaeological digs, they've even found some iron hooks in the dungeon in which John the Baptist actually was likely in. And this intimidating place, when you look in this dungeon, just how awful it looks, was definitely somewhere that was formidable. And it's hard to imagine. And so while locked up in the dungeon, 
John's disciples come and start telling him these things. What are these things? Well, Jesus' miracles and his preaching and everything that he was doing, they come and tell him these things. And you'd think at this point, John would celebrate and be happy. Wow, look at what Jesus is doing. But what is John's response to these great reports? Look at verse 19 again. Calling two of his disciples to him, he sent them to the Lord, right, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? This isn't exactly what you'd expect at this point. Here this guy is, Jesus, doing miracles, healing people, raising dead people, amazing miracles. And John's like, are you the guy? Is this really who? And when we think, we're like, well, why is John the Baptist voicing all of this doubt? Now, obviously, we know that he's in prison, so that's a really rough area to be in. Obviously, he's he's suffering while Jesus is out there doing these miracles. But we have to understand what John's message was. And it's been since Luke 3, toward the beginning, verses 7 through 9, that we see John's message from the Lord. And let's just read this to kind of get our mind's eye here, understand where John is. This is John. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. That message sounds a little different than what Jesus is doing right now. Uh, So if we look, John's message is the message of judgment and repentance. It is a harsh message. Uh, He prophesied about a Messiah who was going to come with an axe ready to cut down trees and throw them into the fire. Judgment, sending people to hell. Like, that is what John says when he comes. But Jesus, what's he doing? He's healing people. He's he's preaching good news of the gospel. Uh, He's casting out demons. He's doing things that are not exactly what John maybe thought he was going to be doing at that time. Uh, Was John, we don't know what's in John's mind, but was John hoping and waiting Jesus to overthrow the government. Let's, let's get this thing done. We know a lot of Jews at the time thought that's what was going to happen. Was he awaiting Jesus to just bring judgment? Take that axe, cut down Rome. Cut down the false teachers, the Pharisees, all these people. Take them out. Was he hoping that Jesus was going to come and break him out of jail? That he was going to help him get out of there, right? But as I said in the introduction, we see his grave situation and his unmet expectations leading to a growing frustration. So John is being blinded by his situation. So what is the situation? He's in chains. He's stuck in a dungeon. He's been there for probably a year, is what most theologians think. Uh, He obviously hasn't been treated too well because he's in Herod's dungeon, and he's just attacked Herod himself. So I don't think Herod's probably throwing feasts for this guy, that he's treating him incredibly well at that point. He's probably hungry and thirsty, getting just enough to survive. And his expectations of Jesus being a strong judge who's going to right the wrongs that are being done to him and Israel, they're not being met. So John is struggling with the what is and what he thinks should be. Y'all ever struggle with that? Amen? The, 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 The what is and what you think should be. Let's pause and consider this more personally and look at our own lives. Uh, Wouldn't you have the same struggles if you had this expectation that things were going to be better because Jesus came into your life? 
right? You would think, oh, well, things are going to be good. Things are going to be great. And for John, he's in prison still. Things are not great. Things are not good. And if anybody knows the spoiler alert of this story, he's going to end up with his head on a platter. He's going to end up beheaded in debt. And that's not exactly what he thought was coming. That, that wasn't exactly the expectations that John had at that time. So what about your life? Do you have times where you're like, well, I'm a Christian. I put my faith and trust in Christ. So things should be good. I shouldn't be in the dungeon. I should be in victory. I should be, things should be going great. And that's why prosperity preachers, they do so well. Because they say, oh, God wants you to be rich and he wants you to have everything. And people love that. Oh, well, I want to go to that church because that's, well, that's the message I like. But that's not always how it turns out, my friends. A lot of times things get harder for us. And we see all the disciples, uh, other than Judas kills himself, obviously. Uh, John's the only one that doesn't get martyred for the faith. Ten of the eleven end up kind of like John. They end up dead because of following Christ. That's not always how it, it runs in. But when that, when that persecution and that difficulty comes and things aren't going the way you thought they were going to go, that's when the rubber meets the road. That's when doubts start to creep up and things start to come up. And Maybe you've taken steps of faith in times of, of hardship and, and you've had conversations like this when you've tried to do things for the Lord like John has. He's went and he prepared the way for the Messiah. He did what he was supposed to do, what he was prophesied to do. He does his job and what happens? He's in prison. Like, what's that all about? He did what he was supposed to do and now he's punished for doing what he's supposed to do. And what about this? Sometimes you may have, the, may have a conversation with God like this. God, I started this new ministry that you put on my heart and guess what? nobody's showing up. We don't even have enough volunteers to keep it going. What's going on? You called me to do this, but it's not looking like it's going the right way. Or, God, I made these marriage vows, but this is so tough. Like, are you not here? Are you not here doing anything there? Or, I, I've been raising my children, the way, but, but what's going on? This isn't the way it was supposed to be. Or, God, I have been giving to your church, and I've been generous, and I can't even pay my utility bills next month. What is wrong? You said you're going to bless me for being generous. Isn't this how this works? Uh, it's what I heard from the prosperity preacher. If I give 10%, it's gonna, or 10 times, it's going to come back to me. That's not what it says, actually, in case you were one in the Bible. We're to be generous because God calls us to be generous. There are countless examples of what may cause doubts. Uh, when our expectations aren't met and our situations are bleaker than what we think they should be, we can become even like this amazing man, John the Baptist who has doubts and struggles with his faith at times, as we see here. This is really incredible because this man, John the Baptist, is a relative of Jesus. He's related to him as well. And he's been prophesied by the angel Gabriel. If you remember back to Luke 1, 5 through 25, Gabriel prophesies about his coming. Brothers and sisters, this is quite a question in verse 19, as we just saw. Are you the one who is to come? John the Baptist, the greatest prophet we'll see, is literally asking Jesus if he is the Messiah as his grim situation is there. Sometimes we can become so despaired of life. Things can be so hard on us that we can start to doubt objective realities that are right in front of our face. Things that just should make sense. They should be so obvious that we can start to doubt because of our situation. We can get to dark places. Have you ever had a moment where you started just doubting everything that you knew was true, but now you're like, well, 
I'm not even sure. Is it really 2023? Like you're just there. You're just in such a dark place. You don't even know. Am, am I really alive? And what what is going on? Is this a dream? You know, just things are just so bleak, so dark. Things are so hard. The stress is so much that even the simple truths become blurry at that time. This is a common plague of man at times. A lot of old theologians have called this the dark night of the soul, those times where, where pressure is so hard on you, temptation is so hard, darkness is so hard, that you just don't know what to do. The discouragement is so tough. The hopelessness is so tough. But my friends, we don't have to stay there. We will get there at times. That's just part of this life. It's hard. And there's going to be times where you get there. But we need to do what John does in this account. And what does John do? He takes his doubts where? To Jesus, to the Lord. He takes his doubts to the Lord. He doesn't just sit there and wallow in his self-pity in the dungeon, but he takes his doubts to the Lord. And when we do that, we can see that Jesus changes those who submit. Jesus changes those who submit. Let me start reading in verse 21 through 23. In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them, and, he bl and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Verse 21 is a great follow-up to their question. Uh, Jesus doesn't just say, yeah, I'm him. No, he acts. He acts. He, he doesn't just tell them the answer. He shows them the answer by these miraculous things that he does. He, he heals people of their diseases and plagues and evil spirits. He just bestows sight upon those who are blind. Jesus is the real deal. He shows them that. The disciples of John the Baptist are nonetheless fully convinced, and after showing them, he, he goes ahead and he speaks the truth, and he delivers this message to John, and he says, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are clean, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. Note that all six of these works are in both Matthew and Luke's account of this account. We read that, and you know, we're just used to Jesus being Jesus and doing amazing things, but dude, like he literally takes John's disciples, and he's walking through, and he's showing them all of this. Could you imagine John's disciples hanging out with Jesus that day? Like all of a sudden, you see this blind guy, oh, he can see now. Oh, this lame person, he just got up and walked, uh, this leper that is untouchable, that shouldn't be able to go near anybody, now has baby-like skin. The deaf now hear. The dead are raised up. Some dead guy is up now. And the poor have good news preached to them. There's hope. How amazing is that? But before he finishes this interchange with the disciples, he finishes with verse 23. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Jesus ends his teaching with this. Blessed is the one who's not offended by me. The Greek word offended is skandalizo, which means to make stumble or take offense. Now, we can't know exactly how this last statement that Jesus said felt to John. Uh, there is kindness that Jesus has shown John and his disciples by showing him and affirming his messianic authority. 
in real time, as we've just seen. But there's also a teaching that we should not remain in doubt. We can't stay there. We will get there at times, but we cannot stay there. We should believe in Christ and love him and trust him. So Jesus charges John and all those listening at the time to stand firm and persevere. He reminds them that his ways are higher than our ways. See Isaiah 55, 8 through 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as, high, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thought, thoughts. And because of this, he requires us to submit to him even when it doesn't make sense. Even when we're in prison and we're in chains, even though we've been obedient. It's not like we've done anything. John the Baptist didn't do something to deserve to be in chains. He followed the Lord. He spoke the truth. He called out sin, and he's suffering. Even when obedience to Christ involves heartache, pain, suffering, and even death, John's faith was renewed and reinvigorated by Jesus' charge here. And we know that because we're going to see these kind words that Jesus says about John right after. But, but I fervently ask you to be sure that you do what John did when you struggle with doubt. Don't just suppress it. Don't be like, well, I can't talk about that in public because people are going to look at me like I'm a horrible Christian. I can't talk to the pastor about that doubt. I, I can't talk to my wife or my husband about that doubt. I can't talk to my friend who I know is godly and, and wants what's best for me, but I can't admit about that struggle or that doubt. Now take them to the Lord. Open up his word and read it. Spend time in persistent prayer. Voice your concerns and struggles to him. He is faithful and gentle, brothers and sisters. Some of us have this, this, this warped view of God, that he's there with a magnifying glass like we're an ant, and he's just trying to burn us. And every time, quit, don't do that sin again. No, no, no. And we have this, like, this, this abusive father-like view of God, and that is not who he is. He loves us. He cares for us. This is what Jesus says about those who are struggling. Look at this messianic verse in, in, in Isaiah 42.3. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. And he will faithfully bring forth justice. This is strictly messianic in nature. This is Jesus and the flesh and how he responds to the broken and the hurting and the struggling. He responds with grace and mercy and humble cry, at our humble cries for help. He's not there saying, oh, I can't believe that you're doubting again. I, I can't believe that you're struggling with this. Can't you, I can't believe. No, he's, he's, he's a good, good father. He, he's there to pick us up and say, hey, see who I am. Read the word. I am the God who raises the dead to life. I am the God who cleanses the lepers. I am the God who gives the deaf hearing. Believe in me. He is so gracious and loving. Note that he didn't strongly rebuke John for his doubt and his time at that point. He says, persevere, absolutely. He calls us to come to him in persistent prayer and come to his word, not to just wallow in our self-pity. That's not what we're supposed to do. But he promises that he will be there with us, and he's not going to just snuff out your fire. How beautiful is that? A, a faintly burning wick. You know, we're, we want to be on fire as believers, don't we? We, we want to, to spread. We want to, to tell others about Jesus, but sometimes that, that wick is not burning quite as hot as it should be. 
And sometimes we just feel like God's just going to put his fingers in some water and you're gone. But we know the Bible says no one can pluck us out of his hand. He's not going to do that. No, he's going to fan that flame. He's going to help your struggles, and he will ignite that fire again. Only seek him. Take your concerns and your struggles to the Lord. When John's messengers had gone, we get to verse 24 here. Let's read 24 and 25. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? Question mark, right? Uh, what, what then did you go out to see? A man dressed in, in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in the king's courts. It's interesting that Jesus waits till the disciples of John leave before saying all of these really nice things about John we're going to see. Uh, we don't really know why that that is, but it is extremely interesting. So Jesus rhetorically asked the people, what did you all, what did you all go out and see when John was preaching? You know, this has been about a year ago. What would you go, was he a soft man? Was he in soft clothing? Was he, you know, not really strong? Did, did he speak as one without power of, and authority, as one who was weak and a man pleaser? Absolutely not, emphatically not. We see in Mark 1, 6, he, he has primitive dress, first and foremost. He eats locusts and wild honey. I mean, talk about a man's man. He's out there eating bucks. I mean, this guy's a tough dude. Um, and, and he's wearing, like, you know, just really hard stuff, like burlap kind of stuff. And then we see in Luke 3, he doesn't exactly de deliver the softest message. But he says, hey, this guy with an axe is going to cut all you all down and throw you in the fire. That's a pretty harsh message. This was not a, a little reed that blows in the wind and is super soft. No, Jesus answers this rhetorical question in verse 26 as we move forward. What then did you go out to see? A prophet, yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of, of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare the way, your, your way before you. I love verse 27. So verse 27 is actually Malachi 3.1. John the Baptist is a prophet in whom another prophet prophesied. Try to say that five times. That's really hard to say. But So how amazing is this? So we've seen an angel prophesy about John in Luke 1, 5 through 25, and now we see that Malachi prophesied about him in chapter 3, verse 1 as well. John is not only a prophet, but more than a prophet. He is more than a prophet because he bridges the gap from the old and new covenant. He's more than a prophet because he prepares the way for the King of kings and Lord of lords, namely Jesus Christ. How beautiful and amazing is that? Then Jesus says in verse 28, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Jesus finishes discussion with saying that John is greater than all of those born among women. Such a phrase of endearment that right now many can see John in a negative light and be like, wow, he was doubting the Messiah, his relative, the one he was prophesied to be the forerunner for. He's doubting who is John? Yeah, let's just throw him away. He'd be canceled in today's culture. Sorry, you're gone. You're gone, John. You know, we're, you know that, that's, that, that's what people will do today. But Jesus exalts those who humble themselves before him. He exalts John and picks him back up and says, John, I'm him. I am the Messiah. Just like you, I know you know this deep down. This question's not coming from your heart. It's coming from your mind. And that is sometimes what happens to us, my friends. Sometimes our heart still loves the Lord, we don't, but our mind can run, and Satan can throw thoughts in there, uh, situations, life situations in our mind can run. 
wild. And Jesus just gives us that gentle rebuke and says, hey, clear the mind. Look, look, look deep inside. I'm in you. If you're a believer, he'll confirm that. But John adds, or Jesus adds one other thing here that says that one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he, meaning John. We must note that this final statement regarding John is not to demean or diminish John. He's just spent a lot of time talking about how great that John is, how important he is. But theologian Kent Hughes gives us a great answer here. The kingdom must be superior to its announcement. The people of the kingdom must be superior to its announcer. A position in the kingdom must be greater than that of its herald, though, of course, John was also a member of the kingdom. Uh, Jesus is pointing to the amazing blessing of being in the kingdom of God. Jesus is reiterating the blessing of being a part of the kingdom. Uh, the, the, the psalmist in Psalm 84.10 says this, For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. It's better to be a servant in the house of the Lord. The, the least of those in the kingdom of God are greater than anyone on this earth right now who is not a part of that kingdom. In verse 29, we see this, and when all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. There are those who are submissive. He changes those who submit to him. These people hear the words of Jesus and declare God is just and righteous. A little, little side note here, I might add, they really don't have the authority to do so, to declare God anything. God is God. He doesn't need their, their head nod, but they at least do agree with the words of Christ, which in this setting is going to be a lot better than what we see in a moment with the lawyers and the Pharisees. But we must understand that Jesus responds with grace and mercy to those who humble themselves before him. Going around with pride and, and acting like you've got it all together and that you never have struggles, God will knock you down one day. He, he won't let you continue to walk in that pride. He loves you too much to let you act like everything is good. Things aren't good with us. The Bible says no one is good, not even one. We are evil inside. Our flesh is still evil. Even we who are believers still have a sinful flesh that we have to continue to fight and crucify. And the only way we're going to be able to do that well is to be real with people, have people that are accountability partners, and help us walk along through that. But Jesus here, he, he, he's going to save those who repent and turn from their sins, who, who repent of their pride and admit their humility. He offers eternal life to anyone who has not had it. He, it's a free, free for all. And I pray that if anybody here doesn't know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, that they make today that day of salvation, that they repent of their sins and turn from them and turn to Jesus Christ. He will not break a broken, uh, uh, the bruised reed he will not break. He won't just snap you in two. No, he will take that bruised reed and he will heal it and it will become a strong, sturdy read in his name. He is so good. There's no more important decision. I pray that if you have any doubts, anything that's keeping you from making that, that final, I'm all in, I pray so hard that you humble yourself before him. Admit those doubts. Pray to him and ask him to reveal who he is. He will, my friends. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. Moving to our last point, we see this. Jesus charges those who subvert or undermine his authority. Jesus charges those who subvert. Let's start in verse 30. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. 
the greatest obstacle of salvation of lost souls is repentance. There's no greater obstacle for people to be saved than repentance. Uh, in order to come to a saving knowledge of Christ, one must see themselves as a sinner in need of a, need of a Savior, and that's the hard thing for people to do. The Pharisees and lawyers refused to admit that they were sinners and needed to repent. But when I preached through Luke 3, 1 through 14, we discussed the baptism of John. If you recall, uh, baptism at that point, uh, or before, and, and the Bible did not really have a parallel in the history of the Jews. But theologian Leon Morris asserted that it, it claims that it's most likely certain by the time of Jesus that proselyte baptism, proselyte baptism had come into focus. Those were converts that were not Jewish. They were Gentiles, and they would go through baptism to cleanse them from their Gentileness, just made that word up, um, and make them more holy and let them be a part of Israel. And, you, and John is calling true Israel to do what they were requiring Gentiles to do. And can you see the humility that that, they're like, we're, we're sons and daughters of Abraham. We're not going in that water. We're already clean. They refuse to admit and humble themselves, admit that they were sinners and humble themselves. And this is the humility that Christ requires for us for salvation. We need to come to him and say, I'm not as smart as I think I am. I, I don't have it together, even though I act like it. I'm really lost, and I need to be found by a Savior. And so many have such a hard time with that. The Pharisees and lawyers obviously have rejected both John and Jesus. They've said, no, I'm not going to be baptized. Jesus offers salvation. No, I'm not going to follow you. And Jesus is going to actually give them his cross-examination. They've spent much time giving him their examinations. He's going to give them one here now. In verse 31, we see this. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. He refers to them as this generation, referring to unbelievers, those who oppose him and refuse to faithfully follow him. And he says they're like children who refuse to respond no matter how you address them. You know, I, I, you get a two-year-old, sometimes they can be stubborn. Amen, maybe. Have you, anybody had a two-year-old that was stubborn in the past? Sorry. Yeah, amen. Yeah, you, we probably shouldn't amen too loud. Our kids are here. Um, but, but, you know, so no matter, you, you can talk nice, and they may not listen. Uh, you can talk harshly, and maybe they, maybe they don't listen. And, and so sometimes, no matter what you do, it's just like, what is wrong with this kid? Like, why won't they just do what they're supposed to do? And so Jesus pretty much calls them a two-year-old here, and he says, we played the flute for you. That, that refers to like a celebration. Uh, if we're looking, a lot of times flutes were played at wedding dances and things like that. So the flute re refers to Jesus, and he comes with this happy ministry of healing, uh, of celebration, of dead people being raised from the dead. And they're like, no, not, not going to submit to that. Okay, well, it, but what about the dirge? Well, that's like John the Baptist. We just read what he said. You're all going to die. I mean, good grief. I mean, that's quite the message. Jesus is going to take an axe, cut you down, and put you in hell. Like, that was a very harsh message. We sang a dirge for you. And they're like, nah, I ain't listening to that either. So, so we got the really happy ministry of Jesus. We got the pretty somber mes message of John. And they refused to respond to either one. Jesus in his cross-examination of the religious leaders, it's like, you're not responding to anything from God. It doesn't matter how God reveals himself to you. You refuse to repent. You refuse to listen. He explains a little further in verse 33 and 34. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine. Remember, he eats locusts and wild honey. 
and you say, he has a demon. Well, the, the Son of Man comes eating and drinking, and you look at him, and you say, he's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors. We can't win with you guys. No matter what we do, as God, God can't get their attention. They're like, no, they refuse. They're too stubborn. Brothers and sisters, there's always an excuse to not follow and obey Christ. There is always an excuse to not follow and obey Christ. Humans are able to rationalize just about anything. Can I get an amen there? Are we good at rationalizing? I mean, we all are good at this. Uh, the word rationalize means to explain or justify one's behavior. It also means to dismiss or minimize the significance of something by means of excuse. My friends, countless millions, if not billions, rationalize why they don't follow Christ today. Some common rationalizations are, I'm not following Christ because his church is messed up. I'm not going. I'm not going to follow Christ. His church is messed up. He must be messed up too. I'm not following Christ because I was hurt by people in the church. And, you know, they, 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 they hurt me. Uh, my wife and I were talking the other day. I, I love this. It was like, you know, if you went to McDonald's and you got a bad meal, I don't know anyone that just quit eating fast food altogether. Like, they won't go to Burger King. They won't go to Wendy's. They, they won't go anywhere because I had a bad experience at McDonald's. Like, frankly, they're probably going to go back to McDonald's. Let's just be honest, because it's like addictive. You can't quit. And so I don't know what they're putting in that stuff. But, but you know, I, I, it's so irrational that somebody would be like, huh, I got a bad burger at McDonald's once, so now I'm never eating out in the history of my life. It's just not ever going to happen. But how many people say, uh, I got hurt. I got hurt at church. Somebody was mean to me once. You know, I was in the hospital, and that pastor didn't come and visit me. So I'm done. I'm done with the church. You all are dead to me. I'm never going to any church in the history of churches. Or this one pastor, he was a hypocrite. He, uh, he said one thing from the pulpit. He said drinking was bad, and I saw him at the bar. So I am never, all, they're all hypocrites. Every single pastor in the world is going to hell. They're all wrong, and I am not going to be a part of that. How irrational is that? But, but we can rationalize anything, and we can feel puff our chests up and be like, I'm right. I'm not going back to church because I'm better than them. I'm be wow. Like, it's just amazing how Satan can twist our minds to just be, frankly, stupid. Like, I don't know any other way to put it. Like, it's just dumb. Like, we miss the truth. Just like we wouldn't quit going out to eat just because we had one bad experience. You know what we call that? That was a bad experience. That was one thing that happened. And I can't extrapolate that for all of eternity for experiences eating out. Just like that one bad experience at church cannot extrapolate for every single church experience the rest of your life. But we can rationalize that way. I'm not following because there's hypocrites that claim to be Christians. Or I, I'm not following Christ because I think the Bible is wrong. You know what? I heard this one guy and he said this one thing. And so are you going to actually look at it yourself? You're going to take this guy's opinion who obviously hates God and you're not going to research it yourself? I talk to people all the time when I'm witnessing and they just make these blanket statements, and it's like, oh, so you've read the Bible? No, never picked it up. It's like, you, you believe Richard Dawkins because he's such a stand-up guy. Like, okay, I got you. You know, you're just going to take what he says because he's so holy. Okay, you know, but it's amazing. We rationalize, and it's the way Satan keeps us from actually opening the Word. Romans 119 says this, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made 
so they are without excuse. Everyone knows deep down that God exists. Everyone knows they should be a part of the body of Christ if they've read the scriptures. Atheism is fictional. It's not real. Uh, Atheism is just active suppression of what everybody knows. Only an irrational person can see the world around us and not understand that there is a creator. The Bible even says so here. Uh, No one looks at this computer, you can see this here, and assumes that it formed from nothing. You know, one day there were all these chips, which who knows how the chips got there. We don't even want to go that far. But there's all these chips, and there's these wires, and there's metal, and there's a big box that just came to be. And, and, and there's a fan, and everything, you know, and, and all of it just came together perfectly. All the wires, and you know those plugs? And they just found their way there. I have no idea how they got that little latch thing. But they latched, and they, and they, they did this, and, and you can't even pull them apart. Well, if you try to, you know, it takes a screwdriver to get those things off if you ever tried. But, you know, it's just, it's just amazing that everything just did that. If you're in a doctor's office and you say that to your doctor, you're getting a psych referral. Like, you're going you're gonna to be going to see a psychiatrist later that day and say, dude's crazy, he needs some meds. Like, somebody, somebody get this person some help. But in the same way, nobody can look at our human body, which is a whole lot harder to form than that. Like, this seems complex. If you study like I've studied the human body and the nervous system and the, the vessels, Wow, it is nothing short of insanity to believe that it just came into existence. I mean, it's amazing that these really smart people can rationalize the Big Bang and evolution. I'm just like, wow, that is incredible to me. Romans 1.28 says this, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. That's hard to say. Ought not to be done. Um, I, I find it incredibly ironic that this word debased, we don't really use the word debased a lot, uh, but it really literally means the exa- exact opposite of evolution. It's the exact opposite of that word. It means to lower in character and quality. So it's really ironic because those who claim that evolution is real, God actually says in the scriptures that they're devolving. They actually are, they're going the opposite way. So they're saying, oh yeah, evolution. Well, God says, actually, you're thinking, it's down here. It's devolving. You're actually getting dumber instead of getting smarter. You're, you're being handed over to the foolishness of your mind. You're, you're ignoring the facts and the truth that is right in front of you as you watch a tree and its branches and how there's photosynthesis, which, which releases oxygen that we need to breathe and how we breathe out CO2, which plants need to work. And it just all works so perfectly. And it just looks like it's designed because it is designed. It didn't just happen they claim to be wise, but are, but are fools instead. And as verse 35 says, yet wisdom is justified by all her children. It's obvious that these religious leaders and lawyers do not have wisdom and thus stand without true justification with, from their sins. Children of wisdom have wisdom, and wisdom shows itself through humility and repentance and faith in Jesus Christ alone. Their wisdom is seen through obedience to the word of God and believing what God says. For Christ exalts the humble and opposes the proud, as James 4, 6 says. Friends, be wise. Follow Christ. Humble yourselves before him. Repent and turn away from all of your sins of rationalization and self-justification. This rationalization goes back to the garden. It's nothing short of fig leaves that don't really cover you. As soon as the wind blows, your rationalization blows right out the window. It will not save you. 
when Christ comes back. Only true justification from the Lord Jesus Christ through salvation will save you. True wisdom is eternal from the Lord. As we come to a close, I pray that you take any doubts that you have, any struggles that you have, and you cry out to the Lord in humility. He is gracious in his response. He can handle your doubts. He can handle your struggles. Take them to him, and he will show himself to be who he is. He loves to forgive sinners, and he loves to save sinners. And for those of you who are saved and you're sitting here like, well, I've still got some doubts, I've got some struggles, some different things, take them to the Lord in persistent prayer and read the word. Be like John and take your doubts and lay them at the foot of the cross. Lay them at the foot of Jesus Christ. He will prove himself true time and time again. I want us to end today by reading this, um, these verses together, Proverbs 3. Oftentimes we read 5 and 6, but we don't read 7 and 8. But I think this is going to be a really good thing to put it in perspective. So let's start reading in verse 5. Ready? Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Let us pray. Lord God, I pray that if anyone here has not feared the Lord and dropped down to their knees and humbled themselves before you, that they will be healed, that they will have refreshment to their bones, healing to their flesh, that the old them can be crucified with Christ and the new them can be raised with him. That's what we call being born again in John chapter 3. That you take our old self and you put it off and you give us a new self in which your Holy Spirit fills us and changes us from the inside out. Lord God, if anyone here does not know you as the Lord and Savior, I pray that they do that right now. That they say, no longer my way, but I want to live for you. I know I've had struggles. I know I've had doubts, but you have proven yourself time and time again, and you prove yourself right now that you are him. You are the Messiah, and I trust you. I put my faith and trust in you. You are my Savior. Save my soul. I pray that, that if you haven't done that before, that you do that right now, even as we pray. For those others that are here that, that are following you already, and, and they've just had some rough, rough patches. Their, their circumstances have made them have some doubts about what truth is. They're, they're, they're doubting, well, does God really love me? Does God really care? Is he really there? I pray that they've heard your word today, and they've been satisfied in it, that they've been lifted up, that, that, that you've picked them up off the ground that you've taken that bruised reed and you've offered your healing touch upon it. You've taken that smoldering wick that's saying, oh, well, I've shared the gospel this time and this time and this time, and I've done these good things and I've reached out to neighbor and nobody seems to care. But that you light that fire, that you blow oxygen on it, and that you help it to even increase in nature, knowing that we do it all for you and your glory. Lord God, be with us this week. Help us to be lights for you, shining lights for you. God, we thank you, we praise you, and we love you. It's in your awesome name we pray. And amen. Have a blessed week.